Hello, my fellow limpers. This is Jordan Ross, your host at the What's Your Limp podcast, and thank you for listening to another episode. I really, really appreciate it. I hope all of you are doing well and have had an amazing week. Today, I'm really excited to talk to my first non-actor or filmmaker on this podcast. I'm going to be talking to former Dallas Cowboy wide receiver, Jesse Hawley. Now, one thing that most of y'all probably don't know about me is I used to be a sports writer for a few years. Acting has always been my number one thing, but there were a few years where it was really slow and I've always loved the Dallas Cowboys and I had just gotten a major surgery. So I wasn't really able to go out on many auditions because I was on crutches and recovering for a while. So during that period, over two or three years, I started covering the Cowboys and I would go to events and interview players and I ended up becoming friends with a lot of them. I'm gonna name drop here for a second. And uh, if you don't care about sports or the Cowboys, then you might as well just fast forward to, to my interview with Jesse Holly. But I'm going to geek out over, over some Cowboys interactions I've had. One of them, I was covering a, a charity flag football game with some former players, and I got to catch a pass from Roger Staubach, which was one of the most amazing <laughs> moments of my life. Uh, another time, I showed up to an event. It was my first uh, one-on-one in-person interview, and it was at a, a charity golf tournament hosted by Emmett Smith, the NFL's all-time leading rusher. And I showed up thinking it would be like a scrum of reporters surrounding Emmett Smith and I would maybe get a question in, but I was the only member of the media covering that event. So uh, the person that was in charge was like, yeah, let me go get Emmett and I'll bring him over. So I had to sit there and do a one-on-one interview with Emmett Smith for, you know, 15 minutes and it was so intimidating, but he couldn't have been cooler. Those are just a couple of my stories from my time covering the team, but the first person that I ever interviewed, it was over the phone, and it was Jesse Holly. It all started with me creating a Facebook page. It was called How About Them Cowboys, and I just gave my Cowboys opinions and posted stats, and I'm a numbers guy, so I post a lot of a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and then I started reaching out to players saying, hey, I'm with How About Them Cowboys, and I'd love to do an interview with you. And I didn't tell them that How About Them Cowboys was just a Facebook page with like 50 followers. But Jesse uh, was the first person that said yes. So he gave me his number, we did the interview, and that gave me a little bit of credibility. Then I was able to call event managers and sports agents and publicists about upcoming events, charity events and stuff like that. And I'd call and say, hey, I'm with How About Them Cowboys. Uh, I'd love to to get a press pass to come cover this event. So I did. I was just faking it till I made it. And then eventually I started writing for a website called Cowboys HQ, which was run by Mike Fisher. I started doing that and became friends with a lot of the guys and and did it for for a couple of years. And it was it was a lot of fun. But I realized that wasn't really for me. I enjoyed it, but I I enjoy being a fan a lot more, which I talk a little bit about in this conversation with Jesse. And I think If you are a fan of The Chosen, you are really going to enjoy this conversation because Jesse Hawley's faith is the main reason he was able to accomplish what he accomplished. So sit back, relax, enjoy this original intro music from Devin Levi and give him a follow at Devin Levi Music and enjoy this conversation with Jesse Hawley. Before I I even was officially part of the Cowboys media, I was kind of faking it until I made it uh, and was reaching out to to people and just 
pretending that I was someone that was uh, legitimate. And Jesse was kind enough to to give me my first interview. It always meant a lot that you were willing to give this dude with a few hundred Twitter followers an interview. Um, but I thought that it was it was really cool. So thank you for that. And thanks for for coming on and, and being one of my guests on this podcast, too. Absolutely. I don't remember that, though. That's a great. That's, I know. I don't. I don't. But that's that's awesome. But that's not, you know, I don't remember it, but that's just who I am. Yeah, I, I don't put on this facade. I don't put on this thing. Um, like I, I remember it, and I keep a daily reminder of just I am human, just right. like everybody else, right? Despite you know, people could put whatever it is on your name, and of course, you played this and you've done that, and you know, those things are all great. Right? At the end of the day, when you strip all that away, I'm human, and I'm a man, right? And you're human, and you're a man. So whether I was this or that or this or that like we're men you're human i'm human and i i never i never lose sight of that and you see a lot of people especially in my profession at times lose sight of bro you're just a man and 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 at any given time you can lose everything right and, and everything everything and as someone who's lost everything multiple times in life and i'm always aware of all that status, that stuff, that that's that 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 that's fleeting. That comes and it goes. And uh, you know, I, I am I am I am really big, and I'm a huge proponent on just how you treat people. It's always been apparent to me that that's been your kind of uh, approach to life, because you know, in, in my interactions I've had with you, whether it's that that very first interview I, I did, and after that, it was cool because normally. People that are starting out, they have to go to these events and meet people. And, you know, they, they're part of those like scrums where, where all the reporters are gathered around one player. And that's kind of how you break into it. But um, you were, you gave me that first one-on-one interview. I really appreciate you doing that. And it was, it was, uh, it left a, an impression because since then I've seen you at, whether it's at a game or an event and uh, you're always super super like warm and, and welcoming to everyone, which is, is really admirable. Um, but yeah, so how did, before we get into like your football career and everything, what was your childhood like? Like what was life at, at home like whenever you were a kid? You know, rough times for me growing up. Uh, initially, my, my father was a drug addict and my father was a drug dealer. My mother was a drug addict. And um very almost little to no relationship with my dad growing up, despite him living just 15 minutes away. Mm. Um, and then growing up with my mom, um, dealing with all the things that, you know, an addict has to deal with and a child of an addict has to deal with. Um, it was rough. And, you know, the funny thing about it is it was some of the greatest times of my life. Right. I've had some some wonderful, fun times. But I, I, I got to show you this. And I don't know how how clear it'll come through on the screen. But my brother, he sent me this. He sent me this picture today and it was just out of this, out of the, out of the blue, this random picture that he sent me. And it was like a corner store right there. Well, I used to work there when I was eight. Whoa. Eight years old. I used to work there. And that's how I fed my brother and I many nights uh, because. Is he uh, your younger was, brother? Yes. Okay. And so I would, um, we would come home from school, right? And, and I would lock him in the house, latchkey kid lock him in the house and I would walk up the street to this corner store and I would bag groceries and people would give me 
50 cents, a quarter, 30, whatever little change that they had. And at the end of the night, you know, I, I was hoping that I got enough money to, to buy something, you know, whether it was, you know, a couple packs of oodles and noodles, um, maybe a sandwich from the little deli that was inside the store. Uh, around the corner was a Chinese food store. You can go get a pint of rice and like four chicken wings for like $2.50. So whatever it was, you hope at the end of the night that you made enough. It was mainly my younger brother. I want to make sure he ate first. And then if there was something left over or enough, I would eat as well. Thank God for free lunch, breakfast time in the morning. You know, you get to school at a certain hour. They give you breakfast. And of course, you know, I was I was on the free lunch program. So I got lunch. So those meals were provided at school. Um, because if not, I don't know where breakfast and lunch was going to come from because I, I didn't know where dinner was going to come from at, at times, you know. So dealing with all of that at a, at a young age was something that hindsight's twenty twenty. I go, man, an eight-year-old shouldn't be working. Imagine your daughter, right? She's, right. She's five? Yeah, yeah. Like imagine in three years she had to go work. Yeah, it's like, crazy. Like, that, that's mind-blowing, you know. It's like, wait, wait, what? She, had to, she has to, at night. I had to work at like I had to work after school until they're like ten o'clock till they closed yeah. to make to make some money you know and then go home and make sure my brother was okay and uh, uh and and then get up in the morning make sure we got to school on time to get breakfast dealing with all those situations um, realizing that now as an adult how much of a sickness that an addiction is and you know you always ask those questions you know how did you choose that over me and you realize that it, it's really it's really a sickness. It's really yeah. a disease. And then eventually um, we got a chance to move with my grandmother. Um, I have an older brother as well who always lived with my grandmother from the time he was born. So my mom had him when she was 15. Okay. So uh, when I, we finally moved with my grandmother, you know, she was, she was someone at the time when it was just her and my brother, you know, she make $35,000 a year, you know, with overtime, maybe 40. They were fine, you know? It was just them two. So then you add two more growing boys into the mix. And, and now you start having a little bit more, you know, month than money, a little bit more bills and bucks, right? It's like yeah. things ain't quite, it, the, the money doesn't spread like it used to when every time you, 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 know, you walk in the refrigerator, you walk in the kitchen, it's like three mouths you have to feed now. And, and now I'm the biggest of the, of the three. But at the time, you know, eating, you know, growing up, eating food, the, now your electricity bill doubles, right? Because there's two more people in the house and your water bill doubles because there's two more people in the house. And the food bill definitely doubled, tripled because there's a few more people in the house. So everything that was just divided by the two of them now had to be divided by the four of us. And that 35000 just didn't stretch, you know, the way that you thought it was supposed to stretch. Yeah. You know, in those times when you're trying to buy, you know, my feet is constantly growing and I'm getting taller and, and everybody has, you know, the hand-me-downs don't fit for me anymore because I'm bigger than, I'm bigger than my older brother. And while you're in it, you're just thinking like, this is life, right? Because you look to your left and like, oh, the next door neighbor, they're living like this too. And you look to the other, oh, that neighbor's living like that too. And your friend down the street, they're living like that too. So this is my situation. Everybody around me lived like this. So I guess this is just the way that we live, you know? Yeah. You only know what you know. And, right. And, and that's the thing you see, like children in third world countries that are having to to go get water out of out of a dirty you know creek and uh they're they're living in boxes basically but they still play and have fun like kids because they don't understand right. the circumstances that they're in it breaks my heart to hear of a kid going through that but uh it, it obviously you know you you turned out pretty good so i'm glad and it made you who you are so i'm glad that 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 you were able to persevere and overcome all of it because unfortunately, you know, a lot of people 
go the opposite direction when they're growing up in a in a circumstance like that. Did you ever struggle with any of that that you saw from your parents with with the drugs? Or did you from a young age kind of look at that and be like, no, I'm, I want to stay away from that? No, I, I've, I've never like I've never dealt with drugs, alcohol, any of that because of that very reason. Yeah. Right. My, my uncle, who was like when I was young, growing up, was like my Superman. I thought he was the strongest man in the world, but he's an alcoholic. Right. I saw I saw what drugs did to my mother. And, you know, when you see those two things, you go, I never, I don't want to become that mm-hmm. ever, ever. Yeah. And so it, that was enough for me to stay away from that stuff. I, I've never had the temptation to, to do a drug. I never had the temptation to want alcohol. Um, like all of those things. And the thing about it, and, and I, I can say this as an adult, I'm so glad that I don't because what do they call it? I have like type A personality or whatever. It's like, if I ever got addicted to drugs, I would probably die mm-hmm. because I'm going to chase the ultimate high. Like, right. So like, that's, that's my personality. It's like, well, if I got this high doing this, what would this feel like? And I would just keep, I would just keep trying and I would end up dying. So yeah. it's like, I'm so happy that I don't, I don't indulge in that because I know me and I'm going to chase like, all right, if I did one line of cocaine, what would back to back lines give me? I watched, I watched it destroy my family. Right. I watched it destroy um, the people that I love. I I like being in complete control of me. I was bullied one time, 14 years old. I was bullied into into smoking weed, right, by a neighborhood bully. I was bullied. I was 14 years old. I don't even know if I inhaled, but, you know, that was the only time I've never, I've never done anything, any other drug in my life. I'm high off life. My energy level, I don't need drugs. My yeah. energy level is already at a thousand. I, I am I am high off life. I don't need anything else to to enhance what I have in life. I'm already I'm already one hundred and everything that I do. Since you were kind of the protector of your younger brother, mm-hmm. seeing what what that was doing to your parents and other people around you, the thought of of doing any of that and him seeing it and possibly going down the same path. I imagine that would be a motivator as well, trying to get him as far away from that as as possible uh, too, because you, you clearly were, you know, at eight worried about feeding him and then feeding yourself. So you, you mentioning being bullied into smoking weed once that reminded me, I think I was in second grade and a bully trapped me in a bathroom stall until I would say the F word. And it was the first, like, I was terrified. I was like, I'm going to get in so much trouble. And he wouldn't let me leave. And I, I think I said funk with an N and I right. got away with it. I just kind of said it quick. And he thought that I said it and I was able to leave, but it reminded <laughs> me of that. Um, so when did you discover football? Like when, when did you, did you start playing it like pop Warner at a really young age or was it high school or, you know, I played pop Warner to be honest with you though. I sucked. Really? Like, I was bad. <laughs> and the only reason I played football was because everybody in the neighborhood did it. And so I had nobody to get in trouble with. We all walked to football practice and we all walked home. You know, again, this is we're, we're talking a different time where you don't have to worry about folks wasn't snatching kids like they're snatching kids now. And trust me, if anybody would have tried to snatch anybody from our group, they would have had their hands full because we were a bunch of bad little mofos and they would have had their hands full trying to get one of us. Um, but yeah, so I didn't have an interest of playing football, but I did it because everybody else in the neighborhood played it. One of the games we used to play, and I credit this game to a lot of my catching ability from my time in high school and college and in the league. Picture a narrow street, right? And then on each side of the streets, there are these small patches of grass. 
And so we would play these games. And one of the games that we played, it's, it's called interception. One person was like the designated quarterback. And everyone else was, you had to pick two people. You had to pick uh, an offensive player and a defensive player. And you were one and the same. And so while you were playing, the designated quarterback would say, let's just say I was, I was Michael Irvin and Darren Woodson. Okay. Right? Those are my two players. So when the quarterback would say Michael Irvin, now I became the receiver. And I had to maneuver and shake and move and shake around all the other people that were playing. Once he called Michael Irvin, the rest of the crew became their defender player. And they had to defend me. And so you got to do all this shaking and moving. And then eventually he'll throw the ball and you have to make one of these contested catches with all these people draped on the side of you. And then if you got near the side, like the curb where the patches of grass was at, they could hit you. The goal was to become the quarterback. And how you would do that is you had to either get 10 receptions or three interceptions. Okay. So when they called, when they called Michael Irvin, if someone intercepted the pass that was coming to me, that, that counted towards one of their interceptions. If they got two more of those, then the goal was to become the quarterback. Gotcha. But so playing this game is how, like, the, my skills of being able to kind of, like, eye-hand coordination, because you're going to have, like, there's eight other people that you're trying to maneuver in, and they'll just sometimes just throw it up. And then, you know, and then they'll have one thing, we'll just go free for all, and they'll just throw it up in the air, and then whoever catches it is worth five receptions. You know, but football wasn't... It wasn't my it wasn't my favorite sport. It wasn't my first love. I didn't want anything to do with football. That's it's interesting because I I was always smaller. Like, you know, I have scoliosis and cerebral palsy and asthma. So it's not like I, I could have made a team. Uh, but growing up in Texas, you would think I would have been more interested in football. Right. But I could like I did not care at all about it until I was probably 16 years old and I was out in LA. I I was living out there like part-time for acting. And one of the families I was living with, the dad was a sports writer and the Cowboys were playing. And it was the first game that Romo ever started. Uh, Mm -hmm. And he was explaining it to me. He was like, yeah, this dude's an undrafted, you know, kid. He came in the league a few years ago and he's getting his first start. And I was like, oh, cool. So I was watching it. I knew nothing about it. But we finished the game and I was like, that was really fun. When are they playing next? And ever since then, every game, I became more of a fan. Obviously, you made it into the NFL and everything. But did it ever become that thing where it's like, I have to do this? Or was it more you realizing that you were good at it and uh, you were just kind of chasing that and seeing where it took you? It was both. It, okay. it, it was both. I, I love basketball. Right? Basketball was my first love. And um, I was on an AAU basketball trip and we always play this big time tournament is actually called the big time tournament in Las Vegas. Well, the trip always went from New Jersey to L.A. and then we would drive a van from L.A. to Vegas. And my coach took us to uh, UCLA. He wanted to kind of give us a basketball tutorial and history lesson on John Wooden in the famous UCLA. You know, hey, first walk in the gym, tie your shoe. Oh, the kind of nonsense. And the thing that the thing that honestly that caught my eye was I, I remember asking my coach where are all these people going with book bags on he said what do you mean I said where I said why are all these adults walking around here with book bags on I'm like a 14 15 year old kid something like that and he's like they're going to class I said class I said so no one's telling them like you know in the hallway go this way 
He's like, no, that's not how college works. I said, so wait, wait, break this down to me. So I get to go to and from when I want, how I want. He was like, pretty much. And that was the first taste of college. And I was like, coach, I want to do this. He said, do what? I'm like, I want to walk around freely with my book bag. You know, (laughs) he's like, well, son, you have the talent to go to school. And I said, well, no, I can't go to college because I can't afford it. And I'm not smart like my older brother. My older brother was like honor roll student and all that, you know, never miss a day of school, all that kind of great stuff. And he's like, wait, there's scholarships. I'm like, scholarships? I had no idea what a scholarship was. Yeah. And he broke it down to me. And I said, he's like, you just got to do X, Y, and Z, you know, get your grades right. And then just take your SAT. And he goes, and just keep, keep getting better at football and basketball. And I'm like, bet, let's do it. And so again, basketball was still the, the love. And then I had another coach who kind of helped raise me. He said, you should go out for the football team. Nah, no, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on like trying to, like, cause I, I already had my mind made like when basketball season comes as a freshman, I'm going to try out for varsity. I'm, 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 I'm like, I play against all the guys that are varsity. I play against them all the time in, in, in summertime. And I, I dog these guys in the summertime. So why not go in and give it a try? So he's like, yeah, but football is coming up. And so I listened to him and I went and tried football. And I ended up making JV in football. And then halfway through the year, I got moved up to varsity. And I had some older guys who didn't like the fact that I got moved up and it was kind of like the next little thing, like the hot thing. And I got hit late at the end of a play. I got hit late and I broke my wrist. And I was devastated because I said, this is it. Like I broke my wrist. I won't make basketball trials. I won't make the team. This My life is over. Everything is done. And I ended up healing like within like four weeks, which was actually great because I had in those four weeks... I had to do nothing but work on my left hand and it, it helped me in, in, in my workout. And I kind of became good at football. And then I remember Bobby Alvarez. He was the head coach at Wisconsin. He was my first guy. He walked into my school and I thought of like, I thought I was dreaming. And I'm like, what are you doing here? He's like, are you Jesse? I'm like, yes. He's like, how are you doing? I'm, I'm coach Alvarez from, you know, university of Wisconsin. And I want to talk to you. And he offered me a scholarship. Wow. And I remember running, I remember running down to my coach and I was like, coach, coach, I got a scholarship. Like I got, I got a scholarship. And he was like, I, I know, like, I, I know it was, there'll be more to come. And then before you know it, it was Wisconsin. And then it was like Penn state. And I met Joe Paterno and like, next thing you know, it's Mike Schiano at Rutgers. And the list just kept growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And so that just gave me the confidence that, you know, I'm really good at this thing, but I knew this is the only way I leave my situation. Like, like this, one of these balls, the football, the basketball, one of these avenues is going to get me from this situation that I'm in right now. This is going to get me out of the hood. And so it was, I, I've discovered a talent. People have discovered my talent. And now I've found a way to get out of the situation that I was in. And so it was like, I found a love for it, but I also knew that this was the vehicle that was going to get me out of Roselle, New Jersey. What was the college you went to again? It was uh, um... University of North Carolina. Yes, that's right. And you played basketball there as well, right? Right. Yeah. And didn't you win like a national championship there yeah, on the basketball team? I won, I won Roy Williams. I was on the Roy Williams 05 national championship team, his first national championship. That's crazy, man. When did you start thinking of like the NFL or did you also start thinking of the NBA? Like when were you thinking like that's a real possibility for you? Um, when, when, when the scholarship started coming in. Okay. Um, I was an All-American in two sports in high school, right, in football and in basketball. So when the scholarship started coming in and I understood what scholarships meant, I've seen players go to these different, you know, NFL, NBA, 
from these said schools. So if I can get into one of these schools, the, the pathway to get into the professional ranks has just become a little bit easier. So you, you went on draft and you signed with the Bengals. Um, so did you feel uh, disappointed by that? Were you expecting to, to be drafted? Like, what was that whole process like? Yeah, I, I thought I was going to go like in the fourth or fifth round. And then, you know, the fourth round comes and goes, fifth round comes and goes. And he's just like, well, shoot. And then my agent was like, listen, if you don't go in the fourth or fifth round, like, you know, you kind of not don't want to go drafted at all. But, you know, I wanted to proceed to say I got drafted. He goes, yeah, but the money in like the seventh round is kind of almost the same as if you're undrafted free agent. He goes, but the difference is you now get to pick your situation. And even with that, I made a dumb decision because I should have never went to where I went to. I had teams like I was a preferred free agent. So I had teams like literally some of the draft was over Baltimore, St. Louis. Some of the Rams were still in St. Louis. Um, uh, uh, Miami. I had like like 10 teams and the yeah. Bengals were one of them. And like most of them was kind of like offering the same amount of money. For some odd reason, the Bengals offered me 12000 more than what everyone else was offering. But I didn't look at the roster. My agent was like, you sure? They had TJ, TJ Hushmanzada, Chad Johnson, Chris Henry, right? I'm like, they had three veterans. I didn't, I didn't know the business of the game. So I'm like, nah, whoever's giving me $12,000 more, that's where I'm going. And I ended up going there. And, you know, for what it was worth, I learned the, I learned the business the hard way. So once you you signed with them, it's like, I imagine, because with me as an actor, it's that's another reason I stopped covering the team is because I was like, I like this and I love watching the Cowboys, but it's not what I want to do, what I really want to do is act. And I had done it my whole life, but I was like, this is just taking away from that. I need to focus on that. Um, but with athletes and actors, it's like, once you are in it, it's so much is out of your control. And so much is like, you can work out, you can work on your craft and, and, you know, work on the jugs machine or go to acting class or like whatever it is. But there's so there's so much that goes into it. Like you said, the rosters, uh, there's there's politics and all of it, too. There, there's just a lot that, that goes on behind the scenes. Um, but the interesting thing that I was thinking about coming into this this uh, this talk that we're having was actors. We are kind of you're trained to access your emotions and it's all about being vulnerable and it's all about. Uh, you know, expressing yourself. So when we have disappointment over and over and over again, which happens, you know, you go out for a thousand auditions and you maybe get a couple. Uh, it's we we're able to talk about it and express it because that's that's kind of like our tool. But with athletes, as someone who's been around now some professional athletes uh, for for a few years covering the team you kind of realize like the, the culture is definitely different than if you're on a film set, you know, with, with athletes, it's kind of that macho mindset. You got to be tough. You can't let things, you know, get to you. So it's, it's kind of, and guys in general, there, there's a little bit of that where it's like, you can't express yourself. There's a limit to, in a way that you're allowed to express yourself, but like, you can't cry. You can't, you know, say that you're insecure or depressed or things like that. You just got to suck it up. So once you were signed by them and then getting released and how did you deal with that? Was that something you had to learn? And what was, what was it like um, learning how to express yourself in that kind of environment? I did a lot of lying, a lot. I was embarrassed. Um, initially I was, I was confused 
when you get released and they didn't tell me I wasn't fast enough. They didn't tell me I wasn't big enough or strong enough or smart enough. They basically told me, hey, listen, you're like the fifth wide receiver we have on the roster, sixth wide receiver we have on the roster, and we're kind of short at linebacker. And that bothered me because mm. I didn't know how to fix that. Like, I didn't know, like, like what's like what's the training regimen for a low man on the totem pole, right? It's like, yeah. if you tell me I'm too slow, I, I, I go to speed training. I, I can work on my speed. I can do different things. If you tell me I'm too weak, you know, if you tell me I'm not smart enough, I can study more. But when you, you get told you're the low man on the totem pole, you don't, I, I didn't know how to handle that. And that was actually the first time in my life since I started sports that I did not have it. Because at that time, if, you, if you'd asked me, who is Jesse Holly, right? Response would have been, I'm a football player, right? And so when, when, when you take who you are and, and what you do and you marry them together, well, when one goes away, so does the other. And so who I was, when, when football went away, I felt like I went away. I remember just sitting in my, department, my apartment and I didn't answer my phone when anyone called. I didn't call anybody. Uh, I didn't leave. I didn't mm-hmm. leave because I was so lost. I did not know where to go. I was too embarrassed to go back to my hometown because, of course, you have a small pocket of people who support you. Let's go, Jess. You can do it. And you have a large majority of people to say, you won't make it. You'll be back. You think you're better than the rest of us. And I was like, are they right? Like, are, they, are they right? Am I a failure? Not thinking to myself, the kid whose mother was a drug addict and father was a drug dealer and your grandmother raised you and statistics say that anyone in your situation, most people in your situation either end up dying or being locked away in prison. Not only did you achieve All-American status in two sports in high school and go on to a, a, a prestigious university and graduate with a degree in communications and win a national championship and win some football games and win some awards. And then you actually made it. Whether you got cut or not, that wasn't my thought process. Like, none of that mattered. I was like, they're right. I wasn't smart with my money. And I, I didn't. And this is another thing. is like when a lot of these young athletes go from, like, mind you, I told you I was an eight-year-old kid who had to work to, to, to eat. Mm-hmm. There, wasn't, there wasn't much money management classes that I got from eight and even my grandmother, she would try to show us how to balance a checkbook and so on and so forth. It's easy to balance a checkbook when you ain't got much money. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it ain't much you got to balance. And then all of a sudden you go through life and, and they go, here's $25,000. First thing I did, and, and it's sad to say, but in my community, the black community, how, we, how do we show success? It's not right, but it is dealership jewelry. Right. That is how we, that is how we signify success where I come from. And to me, when you got a large sum of money, it was like, yo, if you don't come around a block in a Benz or a BMW or something like that, then you ain't really got it. If you ain't shining, you ain't really got it. And so it was like, we always talk about these two different worlds and how people handle them. And I see the same thing in the locker rooms, even today. And I'm not saying that white people don't do it, or, but you, you, you see the, the big gaudy chains coming from the people that look like me. But you also see the stories of the people who lose the most money are the people that look like me. And so I, I did a lot of lying, I did a lot of lying. And I was embarrassed. I was I was disappointed. A little bit of depression was mixed in there. But I lied to everybody. Like I lied to everybody, and I was like, I didn't have any more money. Like my money was 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 like like within the next six months, the money was almost gone. Like literally almost gone. Mm. And I remember telling everybody like, they're like, hey, why, why don't you get your own place? And da da da. Like nah. 
I got these workouts coming up and I'm doing this and this and this and this. And the whole time the phone was dead. Like the, yeah. no one was calling. My agent wasn't calling me. Nobody was calling me. I was lost because everything that I identified with and everything that I thought was who I was, was, was tied to football. And meanwhile, you're, you're watching people that you either played against in college or you played with in college that you're hanging in there with them the whole time. And maybe they did stick on a team or maybe they got drafted. And it's like, it's so hard not to compare yourself and to not think like, I, I beat that dude in practice every day. Like I, I, but in practice, yeah, exactly. It's but in games, week in and week out, year in and year out. Right? Right. And then the ACC, like, well, how was he on the team? Yeah, yeah. and it's it, like with me in acting, uh, it's it's such a weird balance. The last couple of years have been steady with with work, and it's been great. And it's it's the most I've ever worked in my professional career as an actor, and I'm super grateful because I went through those times where it's literally years of nothing. And some of my close friends are like, oh, hey, I just booked this, uh, you know, mini series that's George Clooney's directing for Hulu. Or I booked a series regular on this show that's going to be on NBC or whatever. And it's like, oh, that's great. I'm super happy for you. But inside, I'm like, I've been in class with you. I know that I can hang with you. I know I can do what you do. And uh, it's it's really, it's a weird feeling whenever you're sitting at home watching your friends do or people you know or people that you've been in auditions with or whatever, um, doing the things that you know you can do. Mm-hmm. And you mentioning that it wasn't really anything about you that that you could fix to to get better with me as someone who I have a limp and there's been auditions that I go to and they're like, Hey, lose the limp. Or can you do it again without the limp? Or let's work on getting rid of that or or minimalizing it. Uh, And that was the note that I was getting a lot. It's not about your skill or, or getting better at something. It's about you. And it's hard not to take that personally. After you, you left the Bengals and you kind of were just in limbo for a little bit. Uh, I read you were doing security work and uh, just just trying to to stay afloat. But how did Fourth and Long come about, and what? How did you get on that, and what was that that whole story? Yeah, that was God. <laughs> just twelve years ago. Wow. Was, the, the concept on that show was amazing. It's never been done again, right? It's never been done again. No one's even attempted to do it again. And trust me, I've asked Michael Irvin several times, like. Hey, what do you thought about a season two of this thing? Because I like now I'm the winner. I'm like I ask a lot because I'm like I know that I have a part in season two. But um, it, it was God, man, and and I was I was working security. There's a place called Tobacco Road Warehouse, and this complex used to be an old tobacco factory, and they kept the exterior and they built like these modern offices buildings. You can kind of like these different office suites throughout this. Uh, place it had a bar in there, had like mellow mushroom in there. And so um, I was the third shift supervisor from 11 at night to seven in the morning. I was the third shift supervisor uh, of this, this security company, Ally Barton Security. And I remember like, walking throughout the, the place, like three, four o'clock in the morning, it's dead quiet. Like nothing's happening. Like the world is literally um, sleep. You hear your thoughts. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you're there, is that kind of is that kind of mode? I remember walking to the middle of the courtyard, and I just was kind of like, 
talking to God and I was like, what do you like, what do you want from me? I remember getting down on my hands and knees and I'm looking up to the heavens and my hands are spread out wide and I'm saying, what do you want from me? I'm screaming, what do you want from me? And like in that moment, there was this quiet moment and God just like you, I just want you. That's it. Nothing else, nothing more. I don't need you to get right. I I just want you. It was kind of almost like, well, I got nothing else. So I might as well give you me, right? It's like, I got nothing else. So I, I, I dedicated my life like again to Christ like that night and maybe two weeks. Then that's, that's tops. I'm sitting at work and I get a call and the call is from Kevin Bess. Kevin Bess at the time was the PR guy at Carolina football for Carolina football. And he said, Jess, what's going on? This is KB. I'm just calling to let you know, hey, some people called me about this TV show. I don't know much about it, but I want to give you a call uh, for courtesy and just say, I gave them your name and your email. Is this still your number? Is this still your email? I'm like, yeah, that's my somebody. He's like, I'm like, what is it about? He's like, I don't know, but they're going to call you. A couple of days later, I get a call um, and they're like, hey, we're going to fax you this um, information, fill it out and fax it back to us. Right. There was no online PDF scan and send it back. It was like fax. Right. Yeah. So what they do, they send it and I, 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 and I fax it and I, I fill it out and they fax it back to them. And then I get a call a couple weeks later and they're just like, um, Hey, we're going to do auditions for this show. And they're like, can you be in one of these five places, Orlando, Ohio, Dallas, and there's like two spots in California. So I'm like, no to California. Um, no to Ohio. And then I said, uh, okay, I'll come to the one in Orlando. They gave me the dates and I was broke, right? I had no money. Like when I say I like, I wasn't rich broke. Like I was broke, broke. Like I had like $32 to my name. I, I was so broke. I, um, I got pulled over one night. I couldn't afford car insurance. I got pulled over one night and I didn't have insurance and the cop um, didn't take my car because she, she was like, I'm supposed to take your car. Like I'm supposed to, in North Carolina, you, you drive around with no insurance, expired tags and all that kind of stuff. I'm supposed to tow your car. She goes, but I'm not going to tow your car because I know that you live right around the corner. So we're going to drive back around the corner. You're going to park your car and I'm going to take your license plates until you get this car up to date. And I said, all right, cool. Thank you so much. But I still had to get to work that night. I couldn't miss work. So once she drove off, I waited about 10 minutes and then I stole the license plate off another car in the parking lot. And just put it on my car like it was mine. I was like, yeah. But I had to get to work. And so, um, like, I was that broke. And so I'm like, all right, how do I get to Orlando? I don't have enough money for a plane ticket. I don't have enough money for a train ticket. There's no way in hell I'm driving this car that's already not insured. And I have stolen plates on it. I'm like, imagine me getting pulled over in some, in, 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 in Georgia, right? In Alabama somewhere yeah. Tennessee and this black guy in his car, this nice car and the, the tags don't match. That, that, that's not going to be a good situation for me. That's not going to be a good situation for me. There's <laughs> right. no, you know, there's not, it's not going to end well for me anyway, shape or form. So I'm like, I'm not going to do that, but I'm like, how do I, how do I, you know, I'm thinking about, I'm on, honestly, you want the honest truth? I'm thinking about stealing. Like what can I steal? What can I take? What can I do something to get this money to get me to Orlando? Two days later, I get a call in the morning. I'm getting off work. I get a call in the morning from my godmother. She said, I just called to check on you. She wanted to see how you was doing. Again, the lies are continuing. You know, how's everything going? Oh, I'm great. Everything's good. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. As the phone conversation is ending, she randomly says, randomly, she goes, do you need to go anywhere? 
I said, what do you mean? She's like, well, I had a ticket to go home. She was living in New Jersey, but home for her was in Alabama. Because I was going home to see my dad, but her son Dylan got sick. She goes, so I didn't go see my dad, and I forgot about the ticket. The airlines contacted me and told me that this ticket is about to expire. Either I have to use this ticket or I'm going to lose the credit for this ticket. She goes, I have nowhere to go. If you need it, you can have it. Wow. And so I'm like, I need to go to Orlando on these days. She said, well, let me call the airline and see what they say. She calls the airline. She says, you got a, you got a plane ticket to Orlando. She said, it cost me $100 to change the name on the ticket, whatever it was. But you have a ticket for those dates. Pay me back later. I was like, oh, my God. Like, how did I get the plane? I'm going to Orlando. I'm like, where do I stay in Orlando? I have nowhere to stay in Orlando. I can't afford a hotel. And I'm going to sleep in the airport for two days. I remember that I had a family friend. She used to date my uncle back in the day. And she was my fifth grade English teacher, Miss Ronnie Denoida. And she would call me all the time when I was in school and say, hey, for spring break, if you want to come down, da 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 da, da. And like, like, like a bonehead college student. I'm like, nah, I'm good. No, thank you. Part of the time I was playing basketball, right? And the other part of the time, I just didn't want to go to your house in Orlando to spend my spring break, right? Didn't want to. I call Miss Denoya and I say, hey, you know, hey, how are you? How you doing? It's me. It's Jesse. Um, hey, are you still in Orlando? She's like, yeah, I'm still here. Everything's great. Are you, you know, are you coming down? I'm like, well, actually, I am. I was wondering if I can crash at your pad for two days, you know, and I need to ask some work I have to do out there, whatever. She's like, oh, okay. Well, do you know where you have to go? I'm like, yeah, I have to go to this address. She goes, really? I go, yeah. She goes, that's down the street from my house. She goes, when I leave my complex, when I get to the corner of my complex, that hotel sits right there. I drive by it every single day. She goes, if you want, I can drop you off. You can take the car. Like, but it's literally, you can't. She goes, I literally drive by it every single day. So I'm like, wow. And so now I go from not having any money to all of a sudden having a plane ticket to Orlando, having somewhere to stay in Orlando for two days. I go and I do the audition. I kill it. Um, and then I come back. And then you know, like they're like, call me a couple of days later, like, hey, you've been one of the 50 selected to go to California to do another set of kind of tests and auditions and stuff like that. And so I go, all right, I can't afford to go to California. Like, I'm not even gonna try to like, what happened last time? I'm not begging that it happened again. And like, oh, don't worry about it. The 50 people that we're sending out there, we're, we're, we're paying for your flights, we're paying for your hotel stay, and we're gonna give you $75 per diem um, while you're there a day but you have to be there for the entire seven days. And so it came down to now, how do I get off work? And so my boss was, my boss was an a-hole. He was a former military guy. Didn't believe in giving me that much time off. And I was, I was dating a girl as the time got closer and closer and closer to going. Cause I told her I was going and I was, I was a little bit discouraged and, and like, I don't know what to do. Like I can't quit a job that I, you know, I, I want to do this thing. I want to see what's going to go. I don't have much information on it, but I want to just see where it's going to go. It might be, my way back to something. Um, and so she said, before you go to work tonight, stop by my house. So I stopped by her house and she gives me like this manila envelope. And she says, before you meet with Mr. Quarterman in the morning, open this, this letter. And Mr. Quarterman tells me, no, again, no, get the hell out of my office. You can't have that time off. Nope, nope, nope. You're a thirsty supervisor. You know, if not, you know, then, then, then I'll find somebody else. You know, you can quit or fire or whatever. And so I, I'm like looking at this envelope on my lap and I open this envelope up as he didn't told me no and told me to get the hell out of his office. It was a letter of resignation that she had written for me. I didn't ask her to write it. 
didn't tell her to write it, didn't mention her writing it. She wrote it. And she left a little yellow sticky note on it. And it just said, trust God. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this man. He's looking at me like, is there anything else, Holly? No, sir. I put the letter on his desk and I walked out. And I remember getting to the parking lot. I'm like, what did I just do? Like, I'm broke and I just quit a job. I don't have any money and I don't know what this show is going to be. And then I go to the audition and they're like, all right, go back home now. I'm like, well, what's next? They're like, if we pick you, we'll call you. I'm like, that's it? Like, that's, that's just it. Two weeks later, I get a call and they're like, hey, you've been one of the 12 selected to go on this show called Fourth and Old Michael Irvin. It'll be shot in Dallas, Texas. Um, it'll be approximately two months that you'll be shooting. You know, get all your, get, basically get all your affairs in order. Um, because once you land, you won't be you won't be allowed to come back unless you you know kick off the show, and that's how like me getting to Fourth and Long happened. We shot every day for for you you know about this right? You you know when it comes to shooting, yeah, it's all day, it's yeah. all day, right? It's like 12, 14 hours, and then like the like they have like the camera crew has to take a certain amount of break, and then you're shooting again. It's all day. Yeah. The same thing applies. Fourth and long, it was like it was like fourteen hour days. You're shooting, and sometimes it's like hurry up and wait, right? You'll shoot one scene, and then you gotta wait for an hour or two, and then you'll shoot another scene. You gotta wait for an hour. You're sequestered, you're secluded, and there's no cell phones, no radio, no TV, no iPads, no iPods, nothing. We had no outside contact with the world for two months, and we lived inside the Cotton Bowl. Like we didn't go to some fancy mansion. Defense lived in the guest locker room. Office lived in the home locker room of the Cotton Bowl. Um, and we did that show. And at the end of it, the same producer that I met that called me that I met in Orlando, he said to me, I don't think you understand what you just done. Like after I was announced the winner of the show. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, remember when I sent you the information that you needed to fill out and fax back to me? He said, yeah. He said, we had over 100,000 of those sent back to us. He said, remember when you came to Orlando for that two-day audition? I said, yeah. He said, remember I said I was going to put a star by your name? I said, yeah. He said, well, in those five cities, we auditioned over 20-something thousand people. Out of that 20-something thousand, we picked 50 of you guys to come to L.A. Out of that 50, we picked 12. Out of that 12, there was one. You had a better chance of hitting the lottery than the winning the show. And you did it. And I was like, wow. So when people say, you know, how did it happen, I'll tell them all the time. And nothing to do with Jesse Holly. I, I just got to be a part of it. That, that to me, it was all God. That was the first hurdle because at the time I was the 80th man on the training camp roster. Yeah. Jason Garrett didn't give me a playbook until I stepped foot on the San Antonio. Once you got there, was there kind of this stigma of like, oh, here's the guy that won the reality show. Like, here's this dude. Like, or were you welcomed in? Uh, as as like a teammate right away like what what was that dynamic like 50 50 there were some who actually watched the show and enjoyed the show like yeah. prominent people i remember brady james and demarcus Ware. they like they watched the show um i had guys like orlando skandrick who most people like Orlando skandrick anyway but like you know he thought it was a gimmick he thought i was shouldn't have been there and you know so on and so forth but the one thing about football that guys will always respect is hard work mm -hmm. if you come to work every single day no matter how you got there, guys respect that. And that's what I did. I came to work every single day and I was a hundred miles an hour. Like you knew that if you, you were going up against number 16, you knew what it was going to be, right? Whether I was on scout team, whether I got one or two players, whatever it was, I was going a hundred miles an hour. It ended up being like, dog, say what I want about that dude. Bro, when he's on scout team, he gives us 100% great looks. When he's on this, he's on that 100%. When he's on offense, if they give him one rep, it's one rep, and it's a correct rep, 
and he's going 100 miles an hour. So yeah. guys just begin to respect that. Right. And and I think that, uh, like, I imagine with all of the, the whole journey of getting on fourth and long, getting onto the Cowboys practice squad, and then ultimately getting onto the active roster, uh, I imagine that your mindset then was was far different than it was your initial experience in, in the NFL. There were still disappointments. There's still losses. There's still getting injured. Your career may be getting cut short or things Fine. like that. But your it sounds to me like your mindset was a, a lot healthier than it was the first time around. So you were better equipped to deal with those disappointments. But I do want to talk about uh, once you made that the active roster and it was 2011, I was at the 49ers game. Uh, I was living in LA at the time and my roommate and I, who uh, he was also from, from Dallas, we went to high school together. Uh, I told my dad earlier, like that summer, I was like, Hey, I want to go to this Cowboys 49ers game. That can be my Christmas present. Just give it to me early and I'll, I'll go up there. And I had to wake up at like four in the morning or three in the morning or something to make it there in time. And uh, we did, we made it there. I was like dead tired by the time we got to the stadium and we were literally the furthest up like seats that you could be in that stadium. We were at the very top behind the end zone uh, that, that you, the end of the game happened at. And the whole time that, that, that game, and obviously you were a large part of that. That game is one of my favorite memories as a sports fan. And there's just so much drama. That game could be turned into a movie. You know, like following you going on to fourth and long, getting onto the team, Romo puncturing his lung and breaking his ribs. And then Miles Austin getting hurt and Dez already wasn't playing. And that iconic, like, you know, uh, sideline footage of Romo talking to you. He was giving me his Chipotle order. Yeah. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. That play is one of my all-time favorite moments. Like just that, the feeling in that stadium for me as a fan and the top row was insane. So I can't even begin to imagine for you what that moment must have been like. It's like the culmination of all of this hard work. So the, that moment didn't almost it didn't almost didn't happen. So leading up to that game, we had just played the Jets the week before. Right. And right at the end of the game, Tony throws the interception. Which till this day, I, I, God bless Tony because he took the heat for that. It wasn't his fault. But anyway, he took the heat for it. It was yeah. it was not his fault why that interception that ball was intercepted. It was on the receiver. You know who the receiver was. But whatever. Unfortunately for Tony, there was a lot of moments like that right. where and he stood there and he took the bullets for a lot of people when it wasn't his fault in a lot of instances. Uh, anyway, Dez had hurt his quad the week before, so he wasn't practicing all week long. So that particular week, I was finally getting my moment right. It was like, all right, cool. It was me, Miles, and Kevin Ogletree. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is my moment. I've been waiting forever for this. Like, I've come a long way. So coming to the, we get to the game, and we're talking about minutes before we're about to go on the field for pregame warm-ups. I'm talking to Kevin as he's getting his ankle taped uh, in the training room. I'm like, hey, listen, K.O., remember, in this personnel, you go to the Y, I go to the H. In this personnel, you go to the H, I go to the Y. Like, let's make sure that we're keeping this thing we don't confuse him. All right. So as we're standing there, the wide receiver coach comes up at the time. I think it was Coach Robinson. And as if I'm not standing there, he begins to talk to Kevin Ogletree. And he's like, hey, KO, uh, a, a little bit of change in today's personnel. When we go to this um, personnel, you're going to play the Y. And I'm looking, I'm like, no. 
I play the why that personnel. Are we changing where I'm going? So he's like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna put Dwayne Harris in there. And I'm like, excuse me. He's like, yeah, we're, we're gonna we we made a decision just a few minutes ago that we're gonna play Dwayne Harris in those spots where you would have played, but just be ready. Been ready? What are you talking about? Like, no offense to Dwayne Harris, I love Dwayne, but like this is the same dude who couldn't line up this week in practice. This is the same guy who you screamed on all week long because he ran all the wrong routes. And now you're telling me minutes before the game, I was so emotionally hurt. I was crying in the pregame. Like, as the pregame is happening, we're on the field, like, doing warm-ups, and I'm crying. I'm like, what do I have to do to show you that I'm ready? And I remember John Kitna, one of my good friends. I love John Kitna. John Kitna pulled me to the side. He's like, he's like, he's like you're not yourself. What, what's your deal? I'm like, Kit, man, what do I have to do to show like, what do I have to do to show them that I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Like they, they, they shafted me, man. I'm not even playing in 11 personnel. He said, you have a uniform on today? I said, yes. He said, are you playing today in any capacity? I said, yeah, but he said, no, 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 no buts. He said, you have an opportunity to impact this football game. Period. I don't know how, but if you have a uniform and you're getting some snaps, you have a chance to impact this football game. And I said, all right, whatever. So the whole game is going on, and I'm in my head. I'm thinking, all right, cool. I'm playing all special teams. Maybe I'll, you know, pick up a, uh, uh, you know, a muff punt, or maybe right. I'll block a punt, or maybe anything. So you know, somewhere I can impact this game. I'll, I'll, I'll create a strip fumble or something like that. And as the game's going on, it's happening. Of course, you know, Witten has over 100 yards. You know, Miles has like three touchdowns, 150 yards. Tony's balling. He hurts himself. John Kitner comes in. He throws for over 100 yards and a touchdown. And his small time, Tony comes back into the game. I mean, like, this, it's this wild just thing that is happening in this game. And we get to the fourth quarter. And, of course, like all we can practice, we line up. Dwayne lines up wrong, runs the wrong route. And I hear Coach Garrett go, get him the beep out of there. So then I go in. Now, we're in the waning moments of the fourth quarter. I've been waiting all game long to get this opportunity. and. <clears throat> I remember we go out there and it's third, it's second down. I'm like, Tony, they're playing me off and in, outside. I'm like, the slant's there. If you just call it the slant's there. And it was third down. And of course, he calls the slant. He, boom, first down. Um, he comes back again to again to me again on third down. Boom, throws the slant to me. First down. Keep the drive moving. Then he threw a pass to Miles to convert another third down. And Miles comes back to the huddle and he goes, I'm done. I can't run anymore. So what do you mean you can't run? You're tired? Like my hamstring. I'm like, man, we don't have, we don't have Dez. We don't have you. What the hell are we going to do? Like, how are we going to win this game if both of y'all are out? He's like, I don't know, but you're going to have to figure it out because I'm shot. Whatever happened, kick the field goal. We go into overtime. So now we're in overtime and there's no miles. There's no Dez. Tony is like barely can breathe and walk. Right. I'm like, oh my. And then at the time, the Niners defense, Patrick Willis and, that crew was just like, you know, uh, Ahmad Smith. They, they had some dogs on that team. Justin yeah. Smith. Bowman. They had some, Bowman. They had yeah. some dogs on that team. You lose the toss, right? They won the toss and got the ball first in overtime. We stopped them. And the series before that, when you see the infamous, you know, Tony tapping my shoulder saying, I don't know what he said to me. Because the whole time, like, as he's trying to talk, I'm over-talking him, telling him, Tony, I'm ready. Tony, I'm ready. I'm ready, Tony. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready, Tony. I'm ready. So we get in the huddle 
And Tony like limps in. He's like, you know, he can barely hold himself up. And I'm standing right next to him. And Jason Garrett called 585 Harvey's. That's the play that Jason Garrett called. And I know it because I'm standing there and I can hear it in his helmet. Tony goes, Tony has another one else, like take a deep breath. And he goes, F it. Let's go win this football game. And he calls a play called Z Poker. Now, Z Poker, we worked on all week long, but they didn't work on Z Poker for me. That's a miles play. It was four miles. It was all four miles. And it's a, it's a, what we call a YOLO play. It's like Miles is the first, second, third, fourth option. If it ain't there, throw it into the stands. We'll play second down. Wow. And so he calls. He's like, let's go win this effing game. And he calls Z-Poker. Okay, Z-Poker, break. Oh, wait. I'm the Z. <laughs> yeah. That's me. So as I'm going to the line, I'm like, oh, snap. This is me. And, and it's a two-play call, right? It's, it's a run, play, kill. To Z Poker. Like, if you don't have a look, I'm going to run the ball. If we have the look, I'm going to, you, you can hear him in the call. He goes, kill, 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 kill. We're just waiting for the safety to come down. We get a single high look, we're taking a shot. If we get a two high look, we're going to run the football. And we'll, you know, we'll call it later. Sure enough, the safety rolled down. I'm looking, I'm like, holy crap. It's about to happen. Like, this is about to happen. And it happened. And like, the whole time I'm like, I'm running, I know I'm open. I'm like, throw it, throw it, throw it, throw it. And like, I could see the ball coming. I'm like, come on, ball, come on, ball. And someone asked me before, like, did you ever thought about dropping it? That never came to my mind. I wasn't going to, I didn't, I, I wasn't going to drop it, never. But then when I caught it, I could hear Dante Whitner. I can hear Dante Whitner. <laughs> I can hear him. And I'm running and I've realized I'm tired and I'm at top speed. There is no more gears for me. So either in my head, I'm saying, I'm just going to keep running at this speed and it's all downhill for me. And I get tackled at the one yard line. Now I told you back when I was working third shift security, right? Three o'clock in the morning, I'm on my hands and knees, arms up to the heavens. And I'm saying, what do you want from me? Fast forward to the San Francisco game. I get tackled at the one yard line. I'm on my hands and knees. And I'm saying, at this time, I'm saying, glory, thank you, Jesus. It's the same stance. It's the same stance that I was in at 3 o'clock in the morning in the middle of Tobacco Road, Road Warehouse. It was the same stance that I was in Candlestick Park after that play. The difference was the person who initially went into that stance in Durham was a person who was all about itself. And I lost everything because I was all about me and I wasn't about the gifts that God gave me and doing the right things with them. The person in Candlestick Park was a person that understood my identity. It wasn't in football. Football is what I did. It wasn't who I, who I am, who I was. And I was giving credit to where credit was due. I was never supposed to score, ever. I was never supposed to score. Because if I score, game is over. Everyone rushes the field. Everyone's jumping on top of me. Everyone, I lose my moment. I lose the moment. But because I'm at the one-yard line, the game is still in play. The cameras have to watch me praise Jesus Christ for the next two minutes. You can't turn away. Can't. That was God's way of saying, when you asked me, what did, you, what did I want from you? And I told you, just you. When you give me you, 
I can make things work in such a way for you that when, when you get on here and you have to tell Jordan Ross about the story, you can't leave me out. You cannot say you did that. And here it was, I did nothing the entire game, right? And, and, and now I have one of the most historical Cowboys moments. I go down in history. You can't talk about Tony Romo and not mention my name. For, for whatever, you know, whether it's a small moment, it's a moment. It's my moment. And, and that goes down in history. What, what Kitna told you about, you know, you have a uniform on, you can make an impact. It's, it's the same mindset as an actor. It's like, there are no small parts. Like you, you may have one line in this scene, but you can make an impact with that one line. And it's something I've struggled with. The, the show I'm on now, which most of my listeners of this podcast know me from this show, and they're going to love this episode because of everything you've, you've talked about, uh, because it's a show about Jesus and the apostles. And uh, I play one of the apostles, but we're going to go for seven seasons. So unlike most movies or shows about Jesus and the apostles, every apostle gets their moments to shine and their, their stories fleshed out, even the ones you don't really know about. Um, and as James the lesser or little James, as they call me on the show, I'm not one of the, the main, like, you know, three apostles, like it's, it's Simon Peter, you know, uh, James and John, like those are kind of his inner circle. And then uh, the rest of us, are uh you know we're still series regulars we're there all the time but it's a huge cast there's 12 apostles there's jesus there's mary magdalene there's a few other characters and uh so there's only so much screen time everyone gets you may be there but you're not doing a lot and i i get you know a few good scenes every season where it's like okay this is my moment to shine um but there those moments where it's like you feel down and you're like, man, like, you know, I'm just here. I'm basically an extra in, in this whole episode. But then you remember, you're like, no, that doesn't matter. No matter what I'm doing, I can make an impact in this scene, even if it's just my reaction to something that's going on. And uh, it be your story. Like, I, I just relate to it so much because there there's one small scene in this last uh, season that, that we've been releasing. And because of my physical condition, I've always, it's been a huge insecurity. And I talked about it in the first episode of my podcast a lot. So I'm not going to go in too much detail, but in an episode where Jesus is in a tent healing people all day for like 14 hours, nonstop healing people, there's a line of people that came from a nearby village and the scene, you don't see any of that. You just see his apostles outside of the tent, kind of in their little campsite waiting for him to, to finish up. They're like, when is he going to be done? Um, helping with crowd control, taking shifts and coming back and like take and resting and just waiting to see when he's going to finish up. And uh, it, you just hear their conversations about what's happening. And I'm sitting there with the actor who plays Thomas and uh, he is talking to me and my character's a little like kind of in a pissy mood. And it's because I'm sitting there watching him heal all of these other people. Yet I'm there with a disability, with a limp, with something that a handicap. And I'm like, why am I not being healed? And that scene right. has been, I've had dozens and dozens, hundreds at this point of people reach out to me um, saying that they have disabilities. They, they're, you know, deaf, they are an amputee. Someone has a 12 year old daughter that's bullied every day because she has scoliosis and, and all of these people reaching out and it's just one small scene. And I'm, you know, a, a supporting character on this show that, that isn't one of the main people, 
but it's my one little moment I got has had an impact on a lot of people. And uh, it's the same with you too. So I, I just think that, sorry going for going off on a tangent it just i felt a lot of parallels there right no it, it makes it makes perfect sense so before we go i just i think that your story is amazing and i that's why when i was thinking of people most of the people i've had on here are actors or filmmakers because that's kind of my my circle um but i was like i want to expand it i want to get some athletes and some musicians and just other artists or public figures and i was like jesse i need to call him his i know like the type of person he is i know that he's uh, he has an amazing story and I knew some of, of the backstory and like uh, with that game and, and with your, your, uh, past, but just hearing all of that and the context, it's just like, I have even more respect for you now than I did, which I didn't know w was possible. So, um, I just, I really, really admire and, and respect everything that you've overcome and you're, you're, you know, you're so humble and, and, um, you know, you, you give credit where it's due and you're not one of those people. that's like, look what I did, look what I accomplished. Um, and I think that's, that's so important, but before we go, I do want to ask you. So I ask every guest this at the end of the episode, because I've been asking you like, Hey, what things have you struggled with? What were your insecurities? Now I want to ask what's something that you love about yourself, because I think it's important to give the things we love about ourselves just as much attention as the things we don't like. How about me? Like about just just you? Yeah, oh, something man. that you 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 a quality you love about yourself. I, I love that I don't take me too serious. Yeah, we get caught up in the minutia of life. We get caught up in the things of life, and I've had everything, and I've had nothing. I look at life at every single day. I take it every single day by the moment and I just enjoy it. My rule is if it's not going to kill me and if it's not going to put me in jail, it ain't that bad. I have a track record that God is going to take care of me. You know what I'm saying? The track record is, is there. It's proof. Um, and And so... I just love that about me. I, I love, I love that I'm, I'm I'm carefree. I love that I'm always happy. I love that about you too, man. I think that's awesome. <laughs> um, do you have anything you want to plug? Any any projects you're working on? Anything like that? Um, I'm working on a book. Um, the book I've been tinkering with some some things, but it's it's uh, one of the, the name I think I'm going with in search. It's called In Search of Failure. Uh, so I've been working on a book called In Search of Failure, and it's a book about success. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. And 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 how how success comes through failure, right? On the other side of failure is success. And you, in order to get to the mountaintop of success, you have to travel through the roads of failure. Mm -hmm. and, and most people they're afraid yeah. to fail. And 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 that's that's a terrible place to be because there's so much awesomeness on the other side of that. And there's so many lessons that you learn in failure. So I've been working on that. Um, uh, I've been thinking about doing this whole podcast thing, but uh, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, whatever. Um, not really, you know, like I said, uh, if God wants it to happen for me, it'll happen. Um, but other than that, man, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just loving life. 
I'm yeah. loving and living life, man. That's it. I'm 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 loving and living life. That's it. That's it for me. Awesome. Well, I'll put your your uh, it's Mr. Fourth and Long on Twitter. Yes. Right. So uh, I'm, I'll put that in the description once I upload this. Um, and yeah, man, thank you so much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I, I hope to see you. I'll, I'll, I'll be at games this year again. So I'm excited to get back out and, and see some some live live football. So I'll uh, I'll keep an eye out for you. So it'd, it'd be cool to, to run into each other. Absolutely. So that was my conversation with former NFL wide receiver Jesse Holly. Like I said at the beginning, his story is just super, super inspiring. And it just goes to show that you may have this image in your in your head of how things are supposed to work out for you or how things are going to work out for you. But it's often the case that it doesn't work out the way you picture. But that doesn't mean that you failed or that you're a failure. You know, sometimes your success just looks differently than you imagined. Uh, And I think that when that happens, it's important to kind of take a step back and and be proud of yourself for what you do accomplish and for how far you've come. Um, And his Jesse's work ethic and determination and um, how humble he is, all of that is just so, so, so inspiring. And I think we can all learn a thing or two from that. Um, I just, I really appreciate Jesse. He's, he's a great guy. Anytime I, I run into him at a game or at an event, he always is just super friendly and super warm and, and open. Uh, and he's like that with everyone anyone I've seen him interact with. That's how he is. He's just, whether it's on social media or in person, he's just a good guy. Uh, so go give him a follow, whether or not you're a football fan or a sports fan, give him a follow because, uh, he's, he's a really good follow. He, he tweets a bunch of inspirational stuff on, on Twitter and listen to him on one Oh five, three, the fan. If you're a local, uh, DFW listener, um, and yeah, just go support him because he's a great guy. Anyway, so now is the time for me to announce next week's guest. So we this week we had an athlete, uh, the first time we've had a non-actor on the show. But next week we are going back to the world of film and television with actor Charles Baker. Uh, you probably know Charles best from Breaking Bad, in which he plays Skinny Pete, but he has also appeared in HBO's Perry Mason, as well as a bunch of other stuff. And like I said, you, your image of him is probably Skinny Pete, but he couldn't be further from that in real life. This guy had one of the most insane childhoods of anyone else that I've spoken to. The stuff that he endured and went through is just mind-blowing. So I'm really excited for you to listen to my conversation with Charles Baker. Also, before I go, I just want to add, if you can think of anyone or know anyone who you think might be uh, a good guest on my podcast, then shoot me a message on the What's Your Limp social media pages or to me personally at the Jordan Ross on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And uh, let me know because maybe we can get you or the person you know on the show. And lastly, as always, I just want to remind you to love your limp. Anyway, thanks again for listening and enjoy this outro music by the great Devin Levi at Devin Levi Music. Y'all have a good one. Thank you.